All right, well, let's pray, guys. We'll get started, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, thank you again this day. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy, Father. Thank you for being so good to us and uh, caring for us, loving us, Lord, and um, Lord, giving us another year to look forward to. Um, another year, we know that each with each coming year, um, there are new challenges, new um, fears, uh, new opportunities, Lord, new seasons of life. And Father, you give extraordinary seasons of grace and seasons of mercy. Um, you provide us with everything we need. We praise you for that. And uh, we ask your help now. Bless our time and, and give us uh, hearts that are studious and minds that are studious. And give us hearts that are filled with the love of your word and, and of the knowledge of God. And um, Father, help us to rejoice in the fact that your word, we have it, and uh, it is in our possession. And Father, it is for ours, it is for us to explore and to dig up as the glory of kings is, Lord, to go and to search a matter out. Lord, help us and fill us with the knowledge of your word now, the knowledge of your will. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, uh, once again, uh, we're coming back to the threefold office of Christ, and today <clears throat> we are going to be looking at Christ as King. Pretty simple, right? Pretty straightforward. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 89. To Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a magnificent passage of Scripture. Um, it is a it is a uh, messianic passage, but it, the focus is uh, Christ's kingship and his anointing as king, as the Davidic king. And so basically where the language of Christ as king comes from is from the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. Uh, let's just read some of this. <clears throat> I think sometimes when we look at Psalm 89, we scarcely think about just... Uh, you know, Christ, and a lot of times we need to be reminded that that is really what Psalm 89, or where Psalm 89 is fulfilled. But uh, begin, I guess, in verse 1, it says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And so right there, verse 3, we already begin to see the perpetuity of the Davidic throne. The fact that David's throne would go on forever and ever. Well, we know right now that David's throne is not built up, at least not in any earthly sense, right? If we go to Israel, if we go to Jerusalem, uh, there's not even a temple, <laughs> let alone a king on a throne. And so... But this passage makes it clear that God promised to establish, number one, David's seed forever, and number two, the throne of David for all generations. And so then, of course, the question is, is how is that going to happen? Well, obviously, it happens through uh, the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's obviously how uh, Jesus is going to fulfill this. Now, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, so that you can see that the Jews, they lived under this messianic theology of the kingdom of Christ, the kingship of Christ. They believe this, and um, I'm thinking especially of the verse that I read last week, Luke chapter 1, and verse 32. Verse 32 says, He will be great, speaking of Jesus, and we, he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. You see that? And so that is how all these Davidic uh, messianic promises are going to be fulfilled. And so <clears throat> when we think about Christ as king, we think about Christ and his kingdom, I think that's one of the easiest ways to interpret um, the kingdom of God. How many of you have ever studied the kingdom of God. Read a book on it, read a, a theology, a systematic theology on it, done any study on the kingdom of God, just that subject 
okay? Of course, you would begin to study that, the, 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 the idea of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the kingdom of God takes upon a completely different meaning than an earthly theocracy or earthly monarchy. Um, the kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God is, is um, we could say, it is code for um, the realm of salvation. Um, you know that for a fact because um, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they love to talk about the kingdom of God. But what author, what uh, gospel does not like to talk about the kingdom of God? Maybe that's not a good way of saying it, but it doesn't talk about the kingdom of God as often. Right? What gospel would that be? What does he talk about? Life coming into the world. Everlasting life. Eternal life. And so what scholars have basically concluded is that for, the, for John, for his gospel, he, in essence, has substituted the kingdom of God language for eternal life language. And uh, it's, very, it's really amazing. But there we, we understand that uh, the kingdom of God is a spiritual component. Now, we know, for a matter of fact, that in the Bible, when Christ came, the kingdom was misunderstood, right? We could say that Christ as a king was misunderstood, and Christ's kingdom was also misunderstood. They misunderstood all of it. Um, turn with me to John 18, just to show you this. But uh, we know that the world, and I want to talk about the world, I want to talk about the Jews, and I want to talk about the disciples, all of them um, misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom of God. And therefore, misunderstanding the king, right? Um, this is pretty straightforward stuff. John 18, think, beginning in verse 33, <clears throat> talking about the world here represented by one Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Right? You remember Pilate interacting with Jesus. And, <clears throat> and then uh, uh, Jesus is speaking about his kingdom, because he's interrogated in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? That would obviously pose a throat to, uh, uh, that would pose a threat to the sovereignty of Rome. And so Pilate would never allow that to go on, somebody claiming uh, to be king. Jesus said, <clears throat> are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? So obviously exploiting or exposing the plot of the Jews. Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What, what have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Very interesting, isn't it? Pilate says, so then you are a king. <laughs> and Jesus says, you say correctly that I am king. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> For this I have been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify the truth. For everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What a profound statement. Uh, John often uh, has these sections, just maybe a hermeneutical principle here. But John often has these verses that when you read it, um, there's kind of a double entendre, they call it, where Obviously, it is spoken in a historical context, but the reader is also, in a sense, to feel the weight, to almost be in the shoes of the text. What is truth, right? What reader reading this gospel would not just sit back and be stunned by that and, and, and ponder the implications of that for himself, herself, right? Also, uh, maybe John 11, where Jesus tells uh, uh, Martha, right? Uh, just as a side note, sorry, I'm on a rabbit trail for a second, but, you know, when Jesus tells Martha, um, I'm the resurrection and life, do you believe this? Right? That's a passage that the writer is, it puts you on the spot, puts you, if you would, puts you inside the text of the Bible. It's, it's beautiful. So Pilate didn't understand the nature of the kingdom of God. He was expecting, like any other king would, uh, a king, if he is a king, any kind of king whatsoever, well, then he would have the type of kingdom with servants that would not allow him to be captured and killed. Uh, but the Jews also did not understand. Look at chapter 12. This is all John, John chapter 12. <clears throat> the Jews also did not understand the nature of the kingdom. 
Okay. Because it says there in verse 34, the crowd then answered and said, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man uh, must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer you have, the, you have the light, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become the sons of the light. So, in other words, they could not conceive of how Christ, if he was to be the Christ, was going to die. And so, right there, just a misunderstanding of the king, we could say. They misunderstood the king. They thought that he would come and immediately set up a perpetual throne, leaving no room whatsoever for his death. Um, also, turn to Acts now, a different book. Acts chapter 1, uh, just to show you, the disciples did not understand the nature of the kingdom either. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom either. How relevant is, that for, is this for us? <clears throat> After the ascension, the resurrected Lord is with them. It says, so, they, so when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So there's two fundamental errors that are being made there, right? What are they? What, what is one error that they're making? Chris? The physical kingdom on the earth existing. Okay. <clears throat> so at that time. So they were looking for a physical kingdom to come at that time, mm -hmm. right? And what's the other error in the text that they've made? Chris, you want to follow up? Um, I would say it would just be, they were looking at it being for Israel and not Correct. That's right. They saw it as belonging only to the nation of Israel still, right? And so the Jew, uh, I mean, excuse me, the disciples here, I mean, think about that. These are Jesus' followers. They've been taught by Christ for years now, and they still are failing to grasp uh, the true nature of the kingdom of God. And uh, we would probably fail to grasp it too, right? If we saw the resurrected Lord right in front of us, we would be like, oh, surely now. <laughs> yeah, let's just go, you know. Surely now you're going to establish your kingdom for sure. You've come back from the dead. You're resurrected. Here you are, you know, uh, standing before us. But they did not understand. They failed to understand. Now, the amazing thing about the kingdom of God was that there are those in the Bible who are expecting the kingdom to come. Uh, look at Luke 23, for example. Uh, a detail that a lot of people do really don't... Uh, pick up on, but it, again, it just kind of shows us the mindset of the Jewish people at this point, the fact that they were uh, looking for the kingdom, and uh, at least for the one who announced the kingdom, but uh, Luke 23, 50, Luke 23, 50, this is, you know, the burial of Jesus, and we're looking at Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea with uh, Nicodemus, both had sort of... Uh, come together to help Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. But it says here about Joseph of Arimathea, notice a, a man named Joseph, verse 50, Luke 23, 50. A man named Joseph who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, right? He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. You see that? He was waiting for the kingdom of God, anticipating the kingdom of God to come, to come. And also, there were others. This is a very interesting idea. Um, Matthew chapter 2. You go to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, they knew that the Davidic king was coming. And obviously with him, the Davidic kingdom, the fulfillment of all of these Davidic promises. And here, we're looking at the, the, uh, the Magi in Matthew 2, verse 2. Um, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? That's fascinating to me. You know? um, 
the kings of the East, you know, where they got the knowledge, how they got the knowledge of, uh, of the Jewish faith, and how they came to such a messianic expectation. Obviously, God moving them along to this point right here in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Uh, Jesus, when he came, emphatically, look at Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> so you're all over today. We're, we're, we're thumbing all over. Mark chapter 1. Jesus emphatically declared and announced the kingdom of God. So it cannot possibly be the type of kingdom that we saw that people were expecting because he announced that the kingdom of God had come. Mark 1.15, obviously, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Very interesting, I think, because repent and believe in the gospel, I think, are the initial intimations, if you would, of the nature of the kingdom. That already the kingdom is conceived of of something that a person does with their heart, repentance and faith, right? And that that is entrance into the kingdom of God. Um, just very interesting. Um, the fact that they misunderstood Jesus. Now how badly did they misunderstood Jesus and the kingdom of God? Uh, pretty, pretty badly. Uh, let me read you a verse out of John, John 6.15. In John 6.15, very important verse if you didn't know about this verse, but John 6.15 says, Jesus, perceiving that they were uh, intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Alone. I've been looking at passages where it talks about Jesus being alone. You know that there are a lot of them? Jesus often retreated by himself. I wonder if we do that, Right? And how good it is for us to do that. Take your Bible, uh, go off somewhere by yourself, and be alone. And what did he do when he was alone? He prayed and he sought God. Uh, that's what he did. Uh, Wayne Grudem says, In the Old Testament, the king has authority to rule over uh, the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus was born to be king of the Jews, but he refused any attempt by people to try and make him an earthly king with earthly military and political power. That's exactly right. Now, we already talked about, in terms of Christology, we already talked about the two states of Christ. Remember? And there are two states of Christ, two, um, two phases of Christ's uh, existence, you know, in relationship to us. Number one is a state of humility. Remember that? His state of humility. Number two is his state of exaltation. And <clears throat> his kingdom or his kingship is also to be understood in light of this. So number one, in terms of his humility, his humility, um, we understand his kingship as we've been looking at that it's not a physical monarch, it is not a military political power as Grudem says, but his kingdom is grounded in his uh, humility, the fact that he came as an incarnate man, as he came, uh, what does Philippians say uh, in Philippians uh, chapter 2? He came uh, in the form of a man, taking upon the form of a servant. In other words, he came as a humble king. And you remember the way that uh, Scripture says he would come, According to the prophecy, which I can't seem to find, um, Zechariah, sorry, Zechariah 9, 9. You remember that prophecy where uh, Matthew quotes it in Matthew chapter 2. Behold, your king is coming to you humble, um, humble and mounted on a donkey. The NASB translates it gentle. You could translate it like that. But I think the point is that he is Humble, obviously. He's coming on a donkey. Uh, he's not coming with chariots and troops and armies and the way that you would think, and trumpets, right? The way that you would think any earthly king would reveal himself. That's not the way that Jesus revealed himself. He revealed himself gentle, humble, um, and that's part of his humility. But part of his exaltation is the other aspect of his kingdom, Christ as king. So turn, let's go to the Psalms, Psalm 2. 
in Psalm chapter 2, there we begin to see what it is that God is talking about, <clears throat> messianically speaking, of Christ, and who he is going to be, and what authority he will delegate to him. Um, oh, we are also introduced to this language in Psalm 2 of, of, of the appointing of Christ as king, that he was appointed, right? Look at uh, verse 6. But as for me, God, speaking here, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Not Sinai, right, in the wilderness, Zion. So just remember when you're studying the Old Testament, anytime you read of Zion, I've mentioned this before, Jesus is not far behind, <laughs> right? Any passage that talks about Zion is speaking about the heavenly Jerusalem. It's speaking about heaven. It's speaking about um, uh, uh, Jesus in his exalted position, right? It's even, the, even Hebrews, right? What does it say in Hebrews? There a little bit of realized eschatology. Hebrews says, you have not come again to Sinai, basically, right? To the mountain, Right? But you've come to Zion, right? to the new Jerusalem. Right? Amazing way to describe believers today uh, because that's in the present tense. So it's theologians call already not yet. We have already, in a sense, been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And therefore, we can already, in a sense, be said to be at Zion already, citizens of heaven. So again, verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We've been looking at these, remember, in Hebrews. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Wow, that's very interesting language there. This is the Davidic king having authority now to break into pieces the nations with a rod of iron. That is the disobedient nations. Uh, you shall shatter them like earthenware, right? And that's exactly what happens when Christ returns. He destroys his enemies, right? Uh, and then says, verse 10, Now therefore, kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Maybe another passage. Look at uh, Psalm 24. Go to Psalm 24. Absolute authority over all kingdoms and all nations. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And though we do not see it now, Right. The, uh, what does Paul say? Though you do not see everything in subjection to him now, <laughs> that doesn't mean that everything is not in subjection to him. It certainly is. Um, but we are right now in the stage of the church that is the, the militant church, right? Uh, we cannot expect, I think sometimes as Christians, um, we expect that the church is in a state of triumphalism, right? That we are the church triumphant already versus militant. So what does the church under milit in a militant state look like? Persecution, affliction, right? Trials, hardships, spiritual warfare. None of those things will be true when we become triumphant. When we become triumphant. Uh, Psalm 24 Verse 7 is also speaking of the Davidic king, obviously cannot be talking about David. It has to be looking to somebody else, right? Where are we at? 24, verse 7. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious. No, nope, that's the wrong one. That's that funny uh, moment where you think, wait, am I wrong or is he wrong, right? <laughs> Usually I'm wrong. 24-7, okay, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory come, uh, may come in. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That is the way that Jesus was received into glory at his exaltation, after his resurrection, and after his ascension, he was, there was a triumphant entrance of Jesus, the God-man, for the first time in 
heavenly history, God became a man and entered into his heavenly realm as the incarnate Son of God. That's almost too much for us to even fathom. But um, that is what this is talking about. Jesus Christ taking his exalted place at the right hand of the Father. Who is the, who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Um, just amazing uh, language about Christ. Now, I like the song that we sing based on that. Who? Uh, who, 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 who does that one? Uh, oh, Chris Tom, that's right, that's right. Your favorite. <laughs> uh, all right, let's turn to uh, Daniel chapter 7, because there, Daniel 7, um, we have some more explicit language about, about Christ as king. Only here it's intermingled with another, <clears throat> with another important phrase, messianic phrase, beginning in verse 13 and 14. Um, Daniel is having this vision. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. Uh, when Jesus referred to himself on earth, the Son of Man was his favorite self-designation. That was his favorite way of disclosing himself. The Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And it comes back to passages like this. Right? He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, uh, which is the Father. And to him was given, that is, to the Son of Man, it was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one with, which will not be destroyed. So what is the nature of Christ's kingdom? It is indestructible. What is the nature of Christ's kingdom? It is eternal. And what is the nature of Christ's kingdom? It is multi-ethnic. Isn't that amazing? Um, that is the nature of the kingdom of God. And that is what's going on now, uh, which I think is just amazing, like, when you stop to ask the question, you know, a lot of times we ask the questions in our personal lives, where is God, what is he doing with my life, right? Where is he? He's, I don't see, you know, sometimes we, we, like the psalmist, right? We cry out, how long, O oh Lord? You know what I mean? We, we, we can tend to think that God is distant, that God is not involved, and so it begs the question, what is God doing right now, <laughs> Right? And I would say what God is doing right now is he is amassing for himself his kingdom, a new humanity in Christ made up of all the different peoples of the world. That is what God is doing right now, taking people from all over um, the world, every language. Boy, that baby's going off, huh? Sorry. <laughs> is that yours? Yeah. That's okay. That's all right. Be be in the worship team one day. Um, huh? It's just worship. You may have noticed there in Daniel the language of dominion. You see that dominion, right? It just speaks of authority, and all of that language is subsequently fulfilled in the New Testament and attributed to Christ. Watch. Go to Ephesians chapter one. Go to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse, oh boy, where do you begin? The middle of 19, these are in accordance with the working of his strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is speaking of his kingship. <clears throat> that is talking about what we looked at in terms of Psalm uh, 24, open you know, uh, 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 you know, take, you know, you know, open up, 
all you gates. Lift up your heads, gates, you know, um, ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. This is, in a sense, <clears throat> where you would um, parallel the passage. This is what it's talking about. He has raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And of course, right hand language goes back to the psalm that I told you last time was the most often quoted psalm in the, in the, in the New Testament. What is it? 110. Mm, mm. All right. We got some 110ers up here. <laughs> That's what it is, Psalm 110, the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Right? And that's what it's talking about. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, that's where Paul's borrowing this language from. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then watch this. Far above all rule, authority, power, and here we go, dominion. It's exactly what Daniel is talking about. Far above all dominion. Everything that has power and authority in this world, both spiritual and physical, will be subjugated to the dominion of Christ. Yes, sir. What, what's the difference between when Christ ascends into heaven and is given this dominion and before? Did he not have dominion then as well? <clears throat> it, is, it mainly has to do with his, his state as the incarnate. A son of God, you know, that, that he is the incarnate king, that he's entered into his final phase of dominion. So, yeah, in a sense, he always had dominion, but not as the God-man. So, and that's why we went to Daniel 7, because there is one as like the son of man who is given this kingdom, right? So prior to Jesus' incarnation, he existed as the divine logos, Right? The divine word of God, um, who, of course, by virtue of, its, of his divine personhood, his divine nature, has dominion over all things, but not as the incarnate son of man, son of God. So I think that's what mainly it has to do with. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? It's just interesting language, you know, because I mean, we know he has authority over everything. That's right. Always. He created it. But right. But so I now, his, I guess his inheritance of a of the throne or of a king, yeah, that he had prior, but now he's kind of taking this position now. Yeah, and, and then at the same time, you know, prior to him becoming incarnate and the Davidic king, we didn't really fully understand his inheritance in the saints, which is what it says a few verses above, right? That he's taking a people with him, and you know, putting together this kingdom, you know, so I think it has a lot to do with that. Anybody else want to speak to that? Yes, ma'am? Does it also have to do with, like, the Adamic, uh, just the dominion that, like, the second Adam also being our oh, second yes. Adam? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, that's right. Does it what Adam taking dominion never did? That's right. And actually, there's a few levels there, you know what I mean, that... I was going to hope to get to, but <laughs> we'll see um, the way, the rate I'm going here. No, we, I, I can hurry. I can hurry. Um, but as king, he is also the head of the church. Look at all the way down to verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head of over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is very interesting because um, you remember we talked about, when well, we talked about the covenants, right? We talked about various covenants. And one covenant that comes to mind here is the covenant of redemption in verse 22. You didn't see the covenant of redemption in verse 22? <laughs> Look again. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You see that? In other words, Christ was given the church. And that is what the covenant of redemption is all about. The fact that the Father and the Son and the Spirit come together 
make a covenant, right, on how and why to redeem man, how to do it, right? And what role each member of the Godhead would play. Well, Christ would play such a role that he would redeem his people and then be given those people as a reward from the Father. He would give us to him. We are his inheritance. And by virtue of us being given to him, then, as Isaiah 53, what is it, uh, 12 says, he will divide the booty with the strong. He will divide the spoil, all the the, the, he, all of the treasures that the subsequent glories of the, of the sufferings of Christ, he will divide all that up among us, right? Which means basically what? We will become fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, that's what that means. Now, um, also, turn to Colossians. We could just spend, <clears throat> we can just spend the whole time in Ephesians if we're not careful. I may preach the book of Ephesians after Hebrews. I don't know. I don't see how I couldn't. Colossians chapter 1. <laughs> Talk about... pastors who go through verse-by-verse expedition. I love how they do that. Yes, so do I. I love how they do that too. Amen, Patrick. Um, Colossians 1.18, right? Because it's a parallel passage, Right? Beginning in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, there's that image language, kind of what Gigi was talking about. Those are Adamic themes. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities. That's amazing, all that language. Um, right, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18 is what I wanted to focus on. And he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Uh, Prototokos, first place in everything, literally is where uh, some translate that as preeminence. Is that what the ESV ESV says? Yes, it is. Okay, see, the elect standard version got got it right there. That's exactly right. It's that he has preeminence. That is where the supremacy of God language comes from, from passages like this. But all of this because he is put as king to have dominion over all authority, over all rule, over all principality, over all power, over everything. Yes, sir? With that being said... You know where I'm going to go with this. No, I don't. No, you don't? <laughs> Why is that not a valid argument for the position of theonomy? Because theonomy... You have to bring up the um, elephant in the room. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good... It ties into a lot of what we're talking about today. Theonomy uh, is the doctrine that teaches that... <clears throat> that the that the Christian church it should try to superimpose God's law on the kingdoms of this world. Now. Not in the future. Now. So we ought to try to implement the law of God on the land. Okay? Um, the reason that I would say is because the king himself did not do that. And so... Jesus, to me, answers the question when he takes the sword out of the hand of the church, where he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my, ki- my servants would fight. Of course we know what the law says in Deuteronomy and in other places. Of course, um, if you were to impose God's law in this world right now, there is a precedence for uh, civil, um, uh, viol- or, 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 how, how would you say it? military power, of course, um, if we're trying to preserve the Davidic monarch, there is a place for violence in the kingdom of God, of course. You know, it's like people look at what's going on with ISIS, going around killing people in the name of God. You know what I mean? Well, be careful, because some people go too far with that and say, 
God would never tell his people to go around killing people of different faiths. I don't know. Have you read the Old Testament? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that is because God was reigning over the people and he had established institutions and specific instructions on how to operate in uh, uh, just war. Uh, that's, that's why. So I would say the reason why we are not called, let's say, to go to the White House and demand that they observe the Sabbath or that they keep the dietary laws. Because some theonomists, like Greg Bonson, for example, um, he would argue for what he called an exhaustive application of the law of God, which he said there was even a way uh, it would be difficult and it would take a, lot, a long time, that's what he said, but there's even a way where the dietary laws would be implemented in the nation under theonomy. So why did he go there? I would say it's because he got on the slippery slope of theonomy. <laughs> and that's where it leads. <laughs> it, because you cannot, after a while, you cannot just pick and choose, meeny, meeny, miny, mo. this law stays and that law goes. So somehow you have to find uh, you know, a precedent for all of God's law. Aren't they all good and right? Aren't they all holy and moral? Of course. It's ceremonial law. Like, if someone committed that, back then, they were stoned if they committed such acts as homosexuality. But in these days, after the, because after that, the, after Christ came, we not, we're not to stone them anymore. But they, we are to speak out against it. Yeah, that's right. I think Patrick's right. I don't think anywhere in the New Testament, we don't have a new covenant paradigm for how to implement Old Testament law on a society. Now... Again, what, what do we see in the New Testament? We see that there are principles that carry over that should inform us and that we should try, in a sense, to inform the culture. So in that sense, we are theonomists, right? Because when we tell the culture, hey, you know, homosexuality is not good for the culture, we are bringing the law of God to bear, right? So I would say the only difference is, is that the king, you know, under the guise of the kingdom of God, we don't have the authority then to enforce a legislation that would say it is illegal for you to be gay. Um, and that that is what we as a church should strive to implement in society. That's what I would say. How do we draw the line? It's hard. <laughs> as to, I mean, because like, even as non-theonomous, many of us would be very uh, vigorous in our arguments against say abortion, mm -hmm. because of just how wrong it is, it yeah. kills, it, it's murder, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go out there and, and to the clinics, we'll petition the government, and right. legislative means do that, but we won't do that, let's say, to make adultery illegal, mm -hmm. which you could argue is just as destructive. Right. I mean, it's not taking of a life, so I mean, it's not equivalent in that sense, but as far as the how it destroys society and families and things like that. Adultery and sure. marital sex, things like that. Yeah. But we don't we don't petition the government to say, you know, we need to make adultery illegal. And Isn't it illegal in, anyway? Well, I mean, it is. There is. In the laws of yeah. Texas and other states. It's, it's, it yeah. can be grounds for divorce, but no one's going to go to jail for adultery. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. So that's right. How do we how do we make that distinction? This is the argument that usually a theonomist will say, well, yeah, what are you going to do about that? Right. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and to kind of add on to that is because I would say it's right and good for a murderer to receive capital punishment. Right. And we see that from Scripture. That's right. Why couldn't we extend that to the, the, the homosexual argument? I mean, that, that, that was the punishment for it. And, and we would say, you know, according to Romans 13, that government are to punish evildoers. Obviously, we would say that that is an evil doing. Right. Uh, and I would say that there is a distinction between the church and the government. The church does their job, preaches the gospel. But it would be the, the government's position to hand out that punishment. And, and I think I've even mentioned this to you before. I, I don't see a problem with that. Right. Yeah, yeah. I would just say nowhere in the New Testament are we instructed or commanded 
you know what I mean, yeah. to to either to lobby for that or to, to fight for that. I mean, show me where in the New Testament any apostle is um, engaged in political social justice and political. Where is Paul? I mean, they had abortion in Rome. The only difference was is that they waited for the baby to be born. And babies were thrown on in, in, were thrown out in the street in like in, in a pile of babies when they were defective. If they they looked at a baby, if it wasn't acceptable, they would literally discard it like trash. Where is Paul going around protesting, right, and trying to overthrow civil law so that he could implement God's law? I mean, I don't think no. it's the apostolic no. pattern that's given to us, and that's what we're supposed to follow, not the old covenant. They did that by changing. It's a fool's errand, if I would say, if you try to go revert. And I would say it's a, it's a redemptive issue. I would say it's a redemptive problem. Uh, it's a, what I call redemptive anachronism. In other words, you're going, you're going backwards in redemptive history instead of forwards at that point. If you try to make it your aim to implement Old Covenant law on a society... Geneva tried that with Calvin, and it yeah. fell apart. So that, Never succeeded, ever. That, that, there was just as much wow. injustice in Calvin's day uh, when they did have the Ten Commandments and the Bible in the courts as there ever was, as there ever was today. You know what I mean? Many of, many of the, 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 the magistrates that decided civil law were heretics at that time, you know? Uh, libertines, Socinians, they hated Calvin. Anyway. Another hand. Oh, I was just gonna say Bring us back to sanity, sister. Well, I was just going to say, it's like you said, it's about redemption. If our, our motive behind, say, for example, going out to an abortion clinic or whatever is to change the law and so forth, although granted that would be a great blessing, that would be an answered prayer, but ultimately are we there to, you know, um, to share the gospel and... And reach out to the lost. Ultimately, it's the souls. Yeah. That is our great commission. That is our duty as a Christian, and in hopes that you know, um, you know, God says, you know, vengeance is His, and ultimately He's the judge. And so be it. If it, you know, fifty abortion clinics are closed down, praise God. But that, you know, in any any yeah. place that it's illegal, we know it's wrong. Our ultimate motive and goal and our heart should be. Share the gospel to reach right. the lost, and the rest is in God's hands. Of yeah. course, you know, us petitioning, yeah, you right. know, praying and seeking <coughs> that A, B, and C, this would happen, and the yeah. law would be there would be justice, but it might not be either, and it's right. not our place. But we can see great influences like Will, William Wilberforce and what he did to end the slave trade. You know what I mean? That was because he was a Christian man, Christian principles. Right, and he wanted to influence his government as best he could towards a more, uh, uh, you know, to a more righteous morality. You know, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, Tommy, you had something. I was just going to point out that uh, Jesus showed mercy on the prostitute, even though it was a stoning offense. <coughs> as an example, we had yeah, we had no mercy, and no mercy, and he mentioned about uh, God sending. Uh, Uh, I, I don't think m my question was understood either because I didn't communicate it correctly or not, but uh, what I was trying to get at was you got the, two minutes. Co the correlation between, we would say it's okay for the government to, to provide capital punishment for murder, yeah. you know, and we would say that that's okay and that's right, which is an Old Testament law. We don't see that now. Why can we not extend it to the rest of offenses, if you right. will, you know, for the, the proper modern day uh, understanding of what the punishment would be, whether it's uh, 
you know, indentured servant uh, for owing money, uh, whether it be capital punishment for all the offenses that, that received capital punishment, why can we not make that jump when we say it's okay for, for murder, but when, when we think about these other areas, it doesn't connect very well? Right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that the, the punishment for capital, you know, for capital punishment for murder, you know, that goes back prior to the Mosaic Order. That goes okay. back to the Noahic order, okay. right? And actually, theologians would argue that way, that the problem with theonomy is a covenantal problem mm -hmm. because all of creation is not under the Mosaic uh, covenant. God did not covenant with all of mankind in the, uh, in the Mosaic yeah. covenant, but in the Noahic covenant, he did. And he did so in such a way to preserve the... What did he, what did he covenant with creation to do? To preserve them for judgment. And so what I, my personal opinion is that the world as it is today will continue to be as it is, as it is. imperfect, uh, with some Christian influence and some not Christian influence, all the way into the end of the age where God comes to judge the living and the dead. And he will sustain society to operate that way based on the Noahic covenant till the end of time. time. Okay. That's the way I see the, it. This has been very helpful because this is a lot. Th these are the things that come Yeah, theonomy is, theonomy is very popular today. It's kind of... Um, it's kind of, uh, you know, where a lot of Reformed folks are going, um, uh, especially because of the influence of Greg Bonson, you know what I mean? But, um, again, I, I, I think Bonson's conclusions are ultimately unbiblical. Um, That's where the Puritans were, too, right? A lot of them were. A lot of them. A lot of them were, yeah. And because a lot of that is because uh, the Catholic Church is theonomist, you know? And they were theonomists at the time. And look what happened. You know, in a wild contradiction, Greg Bonson said at one point in his career, he said, I would never want to see the law of God implemented in our society. Mm -hmm. Like, what? <laughs> As a theonomist? Uh, after all that? <laughs> and he said, of course not, because it presupposes you have a regenerate heart to obey the law of God righteously and to implement it righteously. Yeah. So I think he's kind of almost refuted himself at that point, you know. Um, so theonomy goes hand in hand with postmillennialism, you know, um, except for a few, few instances. Paul, I mean, we're Paul, we're late. Well, no, no, I was say, we can change I, the rules, but I share a deal on it. Just, just ask Horace who discovered the internet on Lutheran Sacrament. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of opinion really on helpful. it. Thank you. We won't end it here, but all right, guys, let's pray and uh, and uh, and we'll go. Okay, Father. Uh, Oh, we do love your law, and uh, you've written it on our hearts so that we may delight in it. Thank you for Christ our King as a result of his kingship, his, his priestly and prophethood ministries and offices. Lord, you have made us a kingdom of priests and prophets, Lord, that speak your word. Um, Father, we thank you for the great calling that you give us, Lord. Help us in our journey theologically. Uh, to always be discerning and to divide the Word of God rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.